Coming up today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, the Ontario Health Coalition is holding virtual town hall meetings about the crisis in our hospitals. Its executive director, Natalie Mayra, will tell us more. And Trump is saying he's running. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University, discusses. Finally, Taylor Swift. Well, her fans have crashed the net again over demand for her concert tickets. Eric Alper joins us about how famous is too famous for the rest of us. I'm Shona Thompson filling in on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Podcast, which starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There will be virtual emergency town hall meetings over the next couple of weeks. Toronto's is coming up on November the 29th, St. Mary's on November the 30th, and Hamilton's is December the 1st. There's already a crisis in children's hospitals in Ontario, and it's spreading to adult hospitals. Natalie Mayra is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, and she's joining us on the line now. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning, Shona. It's a busy day here. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> lots of news. It is, Holy. <laughs> that's true. But uh, I really wanted to focus in on these uh, virtual town meetings uh, that your organization is going to be having, the Ontario Health Coalition. What is the goal? Well, I mean, we have a disaster in our public hospitals. Right now, I'm just reading actually about McMaster. Um, you know, they're out of cribs. They're out of, you know, vital services. They're having to cancel um, cut back on surgeries that require a hospital stay for children um, because there's no space left in in at McMaster Children's Hospital. I mean, these, and, you know, before this and continuing and not so much in the news, HHS, you know, all of the adult hospitals in large cities are completely overwhelmed. It's like nothing we've ever seen before and nothing is happening to resolve it. The you know, the hospitals can only do so much themselves. There is a, a really perilous staffing shortage now. Um, after three years of the pandemic, it's been unrelenting. People have left, um, and the government still has wage restraint legislation in for nurses and health professionals and so on. Um, and they they really are doing virtually nothing to resolve the crisis in the public hospitals. But they have vastly increased the funding for the private clinics. And in August, they announced their intention to privatize the public hospital services. We're just fed up. Like, this cannot happen. If we are to lose the public hospitals in Ontario, we'll lose single-tier Medicare. So we have to fight back now. And, you know, frankly, I'm not saying this in a partisan way. Uh, We're furious. We cannot imagine any other government, any political stripe, doing so little about a healthcare crisis that is just spinning out of control. But that's what's happening in Ontario. I can't help but um, recognize some of the, the timing in all of this because it comes after the fall economic statement on Monday. Were you expecting to see more coming from the province with regards to healthcare funding? Yeah, I mean, it's we have during the pandemic had a fair amount of funding. I mean, a lot of it from the federal government, in fairness. Uh, eight of every 10 cents and you know um came from the federal government through the pandemic but but funding you know was flowing and it was what was needed but at this point a uh, base funding for hospitals like we have two problems ontario has cut hospitals like downsized public hospitals relentlessly for decades and the Ford government is accurate when they say this isn't us you know every government has done this that's true it's been 30 years and Ontario has downsized the hospitals to 
below anywhere else. You know, there's no province that has fewer beds left per person than Ontario does. In the entire OECD, that's, you know, every nation with a, every developed nation on earth, we're second from the bottom in terms of the number of hospital beds we have left per capita. Our European peers have doubled, you know, it's just, it's just beyond all evidence and reason our hospitals have been downsized. We fund them at the lowest rate in Canada. Um, when the Ford government got in, they did cut funding for hospitals leading into the pandemic to below the rate of inflation, so real dollar cuts to the hospitals. And then, of course, when the pandemic hit, they did flow money um, to the hospitals. At this point, we they're back to you know trying to move to austerity budgets, trying to constrain... Um, funding and so on. It's a disastrous time to do it for healthcare because we have a staffing crisis, the like of which, as I said, we've never seen before. Well, and and that also comes. You can't help it, but, uh, but recognize that it also comes at a time when admissions for three of the key children's hospitals in this province um, are they're at over capacity. It's one hundred forty percent at Mac Kids, at least based on numbers that were available last Friday. Who knows what it is right now? And well over one hundred thirty percent for Sick Kids in Toronto and Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And they need money to fund the beds and for the staff to cover them. That's right. And they need staff. See, in Quebec, after the first wave of the pandemic in the summer, um, there was, a you know, like they had a worse first wave than we did in long-term care. It was a disaster. It was just terrible. Um, ours was really bad, too, as you'll remember. The government actually did a mass recruitment for PSWs. This is long-term care for PSWs. And they, they aimed to recruit 10,000 of them all at once. They, they paid them for training, $21 an hour. They increased their pay to 24-something, 25, somewhere in there per hour. They did intensive three-month training, and they got them into the long-term care homes in time for the second wave. And actually, they had a way better second wave. We called on our government to do the same thing. They did not. They refused to do it, and they've refused to do it ever since. Um, and we had a way worse first, second wave than first wave. We had thousands of people die in long-term care, and that's when, you know, people were starving to death. And, so, like, I just, I shouldn't gloss over that. I mean, it was horrific. It was horrific, full stop. But we could do that with PSWs. That would help for the chronic care beds in hospitals, you know, the, the longer-term care beds that would help in home care and long-term care. For nurses, it takes longer to train them, right? It takes a matter of years. So we now need to recruit back the nurses and the health professionals who've retired out early or who voted with their feet and because they can't take the weight, the, the, the workloads. They're just crushing. And that means paying their... You know, doing special extra things now, like paying their um, licensing fees and, um, you know, some giving some control over schedules so that they're not called in every single minute that they're off to do overtime. People can't live with that stress all the time, you know, knowing that they're letting their colleagues down and leaving people without care and so on. It just has to, it's just not possible. And I think that's what we're seeing. And obviously wage constraint legislation, <laughs> I mean, it, it's got to go. That's Bill 124. It's just a slap in the face for people who've risked their lives for all of us 
for years now been redeployed, lost their weekends and the holidays. I mean, worked under crushing workloads, watched thousands of people die in horrible circumstances. You know, no, that's just unreal that they that, you know, the Ford government won't even move on that. I'm wondering what your reaction was uh, when Peter Bethlenfalvy was reading the fall economic statement and there was uh, the part where he said we're creating a $4 billion contingency fund at the same time as there is wage constraint legislation. Yeah. I mean, wage constraint for some. Like, as the women in the public service will point out, it's the women-focused professions that have the wage restraint legislation that has not been the case for police and fire for the male-dominated professions. Um, you know, it, it is tr- the truth. So we've got uh, several meetings coming up, as I mentioned off the top. Uh, Hamilton's is coming up on December the 1st, St. Mary's on November 30th, and Toronto's is on November 29th. Very quickly, because we only have about 30 seconds left. Mm. Uh, how can people be involved in the virtual meetings? So it's really easy. Uh, if they go to our website, which is just OntarioHealthCoalition.ca, all one word, um, they can click there and get a link. Um, and the link is emailed to you. And then you just click on it to join the meeting. Super simple. Natalie, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I hope people join. It's so important. Natalie Mayra is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it had been widely rumored that this was going to happen. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. And there is a lot to talk about with the future of Donald Trump, the GOP, and the next election cycle, and the U.S. midterms. They're not quite decided yet. So we have asked Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University, to help us sort it all out. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Shona. (laughs) There is a lot to try to unpack here. I mean, I've heard speculation across the board about what Trump's announcement really means, rather that he's just grifting Uh, by announcing a run, that he wants to raise money, but not necessarily actually run for president again, Um, that he's absolutely serious about it, that the GOP has dumped him, that he's going to act as a a spoiler for the Republicans, uh, and that he'll be indicted before the election is underway. What is your take? It's all possible. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He has actually filed uh, to become a candidate. So I think the idea that he's filing and then going to stop uh, is not too likely, although one never knows about uh, politics in the U.S. The announcement really is startling in more than one way, or at least uh, interesting in more than one way. It's very, very early to be announcing for president. Uh, it's much earlier in the cycle than has ever happened before. The fact that he's coming off a loss rather than a win and still decided to go ahead and announce is in itself interesting. That is, he thought he would have the wind in his sails because the midterm elections were going to really break in his direction, and he could claim credit for the victories when there aren't victories, uh, so that uh, he's decided to go ahead anyway. I think on this very show, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, uh, we discussed why would he do it, and I suggested at that time, and would repeat today, there's two good, solid reasons for it. First of all, to scare off potential competitors. Uh, and to throw down the gauntlet to those who 
might go ahead anyway and try to take on this uh, this powerful leader of the party. The uh, challengers were gathering. Even then, Ron DeSantis was doing well. There are others who are saying, we're going to run against you. Uh, so I think he's saying, okay, I'm the big dog here. So if you, want to, if you want to take a shot at me, I'm officially announcing now. The second reason is he's got numerous legal cases pending against him. The possibility that this will give him an extra shield against prosecution, I think, is high on his mind. But is that accurate? <laughs> <laughs> it, it does create an extra conundrum for those who now want to go after an official candidate for president as opposed to an ex-president. Uh, just citing somebody in the, in the media here, no former president has been charged with a crime in U.S. history. And so this is, uh, it would be extraordinary to go ahead, but they might. In the case of the Department of Justice, there are, there are two or three possible cases pending. Of course, they haven't announced any of them as yet, but uh, Mar-a-Lago is certainly a possibility, something coming out of the assault on the U.S. Capitol where he may be charged with insurrection. Uh, that's also possible. Now the pressure is on to say to the Department of Justice, you have to appoint a special counsel because, after all, you're the political appointee of the sitting president, and now you've got an opponent running against him, so you can't be involved in the Department of Justice. And that would kick the can down the road very nicely for Mr. Trump. Um, perhaps he could string it out enough to actually become president, and all those charges would go away. So he's got a lot riding on on entering the race now, uh, the question is, how is it going to be receive, uh, received by the party and by the public? Why do I have a feeling that a lot of people in the GOP were drinking a lot of Pepto-Bismol <laughs> after the announcement? Yes. Um, the Murdoch empire, the publishing empire, among others, have clearly turned against Donald Trump. They control... Uh, all kinds of uh, outlets, including Fox News, including uh, a, a tabloid in New York, but also the very august Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has just come out and called Mr. Trump a loser, uh, and some other very colorful language, a Trumpy Dumpty, and so forth. So the the media may Republican hardcore media may have turned against him. They're looking to Ron DeSantis now as the next big shiny new thing. Uh, the uh, Georgia race is still in, up in the air with Herschel Walker, who did get named in this announcement, the only direct campaign intervention uh, in this announcement. Herschel Walker may not even want Donald Trump to come and campaign with him because, you know, you get into Georgia and politics and you, there's very high stakes and this could be a, a drag on the ticket. So there's a lot going on here. But I, I've been very struck by how the other media, kind of the left-center media, has been handling this, or the regular media or media mainstream, saying, look, uh, and I'll pass this on, you can't count out Donald Trump. We've counted him out over and over again, and he just keeps coming back. Uh, call him Teflon Don. Uh, nothing seems to catch up with him, no matter what, even an insurrection, uh, the Me Too movement, etc. Uh, and then... Ten minutes later, more or less, after he announces, they're saying, oh, that was so dull, low energy. So they continue to underestimate the potential, potential that he has to mobilize the Republican base, to electrify it based on 
teleprompter Trump. You know, he was being presidential when he, when he announced his uh, candidacy officially. But once he's on the stump, that will go away, and he will be the most colorful politician in American politics. Well, you know, teleprompter Trump is one thing, but even in the announcement last night, and I, I think the speech was about an hour long or so, yes. but uh, there were a number of boldface errors in that. He said ISIS was defeated in three weeks, that he brought in money from China, something no other president has done. That's not true. Uh, that the economy has tanked since he left office, and yet the U.S. unemployment rate is about half of what it was during his term. Yes, and actually the list goes on quite a bit longer than that. Uh, one thing his announcement will do is make money for fact-checkers. There's going to be an industry now <laughs> that comes back uh, fully to life. Yes, he, he said things, you know, that I filled up the oil reserves of, in the U.S., and now it's been drained by Biden. That isn't true. None of them. So there's a lot of... But people have forgiven all that, remember, repeatedly in the past. Uh, the question now is, is the party ready to move on or not? And the losses, because of his uh, personal choices on candidates, the losses that the Republican Party just just uh, suffered, keeping in mind that the victories, he went on and saying, what do you mean losses? Just about everybody I backed won, and he gave a percentage, 98% or some such, all of which is true, except most of those were in totally uncontested areas. They were going to win no matter who they were. In all the contested areas, his people did lose. And in particular, uh, which I don't think has gotten enough attention, the attorneys general in state after state that he backed, the people who would oversee his next attempt to overthrow the government, if you want to put it in that way, they all lost, and they lost by bigger margins than the top of the ticket. So America has turned out to say, no, we want our electoral process uh, sacrosanct, we can't have this kind of deniers taking over the electoral process. So the American election uh, we just went through really was a stress test. The Democrats were supposed to lose big, and they didn't. And Donald Trump is carrying the can for that at the minute. But he is a formidable campaigner with a real control over the Republican base. And that's where we are today. Well, we only have about a minute left, but I did want to mention this. Uh, I think that a lot of lessons have been learned from the Trump era in terms of how much air you're going to give him in any room. He he takes all of it anyway. But, I mean, even Fox News dumped out of his speech early. Yeah, they went back to it after a while. Um, the whole soul-searching inside the Republican Party is, is, can we afford to have Donald Trump again, or can we afford not to have him again, because he is such a formidable uh, force with our base, that he turns out the base, but at the same time, now he's tagged with the with the slogan of being a loser, and we have to look forward, not backwards, and the conundrum for the party now is what to do about Donald Trump, and he's made it official. Yeah. He certainly has. Uh, And uh, no doubt we'll be talking about this again a few times over the next couple of years anyway. Elliot, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate it. Elliot Tepper is Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yeah, he's back. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. That is Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago announcing that he is going to run for president in 2024. But 
He didn't say he was running for the Republican nomination. One assumes maybe he is because, well, he was their guy in 2016 and 2020, but yeah, the midterms did not work out too well for the Republicans. There have been some strong signs that uh, they may not be backing him anymore what, with what happened in the midterms. And Fox News even cut off his speech last night mid-sentence, although apparently, as Elliot Tepper was saying in our last segment, uh, they did go back to it for a bit. But also Rupert Murdoch, one of the big backers for Trump, allowed the front page of the New York Post to call him Trumpy Dumpty. And he's also laid the groundwork, Trump that is, he's laid the groundwork for fundraising for the next two years. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people. He's encouraging his base and ginning them up again. And that is something that was foreshadowed on Monday by our guest Brian Karam, who's a CNN political analyst who has some very strong feelings about Trump and what this may really be all about. I remain one of the few people that believe he firmly believes that he is just a grifter and a con man. And whatever his next play is, is simply to make money. I don't think he'll be on the ballot Uh, in November of 2024 for the Republican Party. Now, whether that means Ron DeSantis is or someone else, I couldn't tell you, but I I just think that everything Donald does is a lie, and even if he announces tomorrow, he'll back out. Um, Does that mean you expect that he might at least run as an independent? No, I don't think he... I I think Donald Trump is all about the grift, and if he can no longer grift you, he's going to find another way to do it. So, I guess then again, <laughs> taking that into consideration, if he can grift you as an independent, yeah, he'll do that too. <laughs> well, well, the actual campaign, those are really expensive. But the yes. lead up to the campaign, that can be really lucrative. Well, and he certainly has tried his best to be as lucrative as possible, hadn't he? I mean, he's selling Christmas tree ornaments and wrapping paper and wine glasses and goblets and hats and T-shirts, crotchless panties, socks, you name it. Anything he can put MAGA on, he's selling it. He's, you know, he'll even sell the tables. So I, I, I can only tell you that everything that he does is to make money for him. And it's also interesting because listen to who Trump directed a lot of his comments. This is a job for grandmothers and construction workers, firefighters, builders, teachers, doctors and farmers who cannot stay quiet any longer. You can't stay quiet any longer. You're angry about what's happening to our country. Our country is being destroyed before your very eyes. It's a job for every aspiring young person and every hardworking parent for every entrepreneur and underappreciated police officer who is ready to shout for safety in America, the police are being treated so badly. These are great people. They can straighten out the crime. They're the ones that know how to do it. We have to give them back their respect and their dignity. So that really plays into what Brian Karam was saying, that uh, this could be about the grift, because those individuals, those people, they're the ones who have been donating to whatever fundraising drive Donald Trump has been has been coming up with. I mean, when there's a text that comes out that says, you know, Donald Trump needs your help, the president needs your help. Those are the people that those texts are going to. So it'll be interesting to see what happens between now and then. As I said off the top with Elliot Tepper, this could be genuine. It could be about raising money. It could be about the impression that he can't be investigated or indicted if he's running. 
And you can just out of hand, you can't just di- out of hand discount any of what uh, he's saying, any of that as a possibility. But one person who might be happy about all of this is James Austin Johnson of Saturday Night Live. That's right, it's me, Donald John Trump. Just John, not Jonathan. But I know many Jonathans, and I respect all of them, uh, but none more than JTD himself, Jonathan De La Damas, who is a personal friend of mine. You know, I saw him on Home Improvement, I said, that kid's gonna be a star, and he was for a very brief time. But JTD wasn't very nice to Chevy Chase and Man of the House, was he? And many are saying, Chevy... Not very nice on set of community. James Austin Johnson of Saturday Night Live. That's his impersonation of Donald Trump. So at least he's going to have a lead role and plenty of material for the next couple of years. In fact, Saturday Night Live is going to have a lot of material out of this. I know a lot of comedians are pretty happy about it because, well, they've been making some coin off of this for the last couple of years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. She's done it again. Taylor Swift has broken the internet. Actually, it was her fans. Over demand for her concert tickets. Eric Alper is one of the people we turn to to find out what is going on in music and why it is going on. And he joins us now. So, Eric, what did Tay-Tay do this time? Well, um, you know, she did what uh, normal musicians do that are superstars. She decided that she wants a little bit more money and went to go see her fans playing live. And so she announced a North American tour, not with any Canadian dates as of yet, um, and broke Ticketmaster. The demand for tickets was so high that she not only crashed the Ticketmaster website, which is the only place where you can go and buy tickets, um, but they actually had so much demand for ticket that they had to delay and move around the dates and the hours that tickets were going to go on sale. I think this is the first time, at least that I can remember, um, an on-sale date being changed because of the the simply just the huge demand for it. Um, and that is not only bringing up, um, you know, people's problems with Ticketmaster owning Live Nation and vice versa, but also the verified fan system, which I'm sure a lot of listeners would know is this is the way to kind of reward the true human being and the fans with first rights for tickets. And it just doesn't seem to be working uh, as well for some people. So how much are her tickets going for, at least for now? Um, depending on where you want to go, but anywhere between $200 and the price of your home. <laughs> Um, and that's what happens um, in the last couple of years. Ticketmaster and Live Nation has introduced something called dynamic pricing. And that is essentially um, the prices for tickets drop or or go high based on the demand of, of tickets. So when you're trying to get tickets for a show, you don't know how much you're going to be paying until you take a look at the specific tickets that you want. So what happens is that if there's um, a Taylor Swift, a Bruce Springsteen, Blink-182, where demand has always been high for those artists, there's only a certain amount of tickets that are available. So there's extra demand right out of the gate. And when that on-sale date happens... Thousands and thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world are trying to go to Ticketmaster to get their tickets. And that's when the outrages start, which really shouldn't be a surprise for people once they understand dynamic pricing, because we see it and we deal with it every single day. We're seeing it at the supermarket where lettuce 
a bag of lettuce is now $10 because there is more demand than stock. We see it through, you know, for Uber or Lyft, where if you want a car during a very busy time, like rush hour, the prices are higher. We see it during airline tickets every single day that once the, that, supply um kind of dries up it becomes more and more expensive and uh look the artists aren't going to leave any money on the table whatsoever well okay there's a really fine line between the law of supply and demand and gouging it all depends on what gouging is though you know for and and i see this with with absolute honesty because i don't get free tickets to anything even though that i work and live and breathe in the industry i still pay for all my tickets so i can absolutely understand my shock when i'm looking to pay twenty five hundred dollars for one ticket to bruce springsteen um but i've always had the the idea for decade that artists were kind of undervaluing their ticket sales um the front row of a concert or at least the first couple of rows should be wickedly expensive compared to the section 300 or 400 in Hamilton um, at the arena. Um, If people are willing to pay a certain amount of price for it, why shouldn't they be allowed to pay that amount? Um, And it really boils down to, you know, I, I think where the anger for Ticketmaster and Live Nation is misdirected is that Ticketmaster is just a front for whatever the artist wants to do. The artist dictates the price. The artist walks in there during the con during the, the, the kind of contract negotiation for each show and says, This is how much I want the tickets to be. This is how much I want to walk away at the end of the night with. And then Ticketmaster and Live Nation just figures it out for their on their behalf. So when the gouging word comes up, and I get it, I absolutely get it, but it's also just the way that the free market system is, and I'm not going to leave money on the table. You're not. You're not going to walk away and saying, well, I'm going to you know, not work for what I'm worth. You're going to take what you're, what is given to you, and the artists are simply no different. Wasn't there a time when the tour supported the album, and now it seems that that's sort of flipped around? Yeah, especially because when an artist, no matter if you're a superstar artist like a Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran, when you are releasing an album, you know that it's a changed world. For every million streams that you get on Spotify, you're making $4,000 that goes to the producer, the other songwriters, the the record label, and so forth. And there's not that much money left. Now, the, the 1% of artists like an Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift are still making 80% of the money that's available. That has never changed. So were the Beatles. So were Elvis and the Rolling Stones and Duran Duran in the 80s. They were making a good money majority of the money um but where the it changes is that the artists are now kind of forced to tour just to not really sell an album but the album is more an excuse to announce a tour even though that they know in the bottom of their heart that not a lot of people want to hear maybe the new album except if you're a taylor swift fan obviously most fans they want to hear the greatest hits well certainly i mean the latest album midnights she had all 10 spots on the billboard pop chart the top 10 when it was released Yeah, the first time in music history that that happened. And Drake this week has nine of the top 10 songs. Drake becomes the first artist in music history to twice have at least eight songs in the top 10. So there's a big demand in this changing music industry where they don't have to go single by single by single every single month. Like the olden days, they can just release the album of 23 songs and suddenly have all 23 songs on the Billboard Hot 100, which is few 
fuels, you know, the popularity of that artist because then you and I talk about it. <laughs> and then, but it also squeezes out a lot of other artists as well. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that in the UK, their chart system called the UK official song chart, they have a maximum three songs that any artist can have on the chart at once and precisely exactly for the that reason that you just mentioned they don't want newer artists to be shut out i mean what happens if during the week drake taylor swift ed sheeran and let's say ariana grande all release an album within two weeks of one another they could have 95 percent of the entire top 100 and that kind of moves and builds into the canadian radio system up here because canadian radio is going to play what's popular as well but the uk seems to have a really uh, an interesting idea where it doesn't matter if taylor swift would have had the top 10 you're only allowed to have three songs on the chart allowing others to have that that success in that celebratory back too. That seems a very British thing to me. Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. And look, if you need tickets, don't ask me. I have no idea how to get them. <laughs> and, and you know, we don't have the money for it anyway. No, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> do we pay rent or do we go see Taylor Swift? Uh, uh, rent. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Eric Helper, thanks again for your time. Thank you so, so much for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.